This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Now on Philadelphia's Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, a closer look. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martorano. We're here talking about the disease of addiction and, of course, the the road to recovery. It's all sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health, about which more a little bit later. We are uh, particularly delighted today to get somebody very, very busy to join us on Recovery Radio because um, she's in charge of a, a big, big job here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Our guest is Dr. Rachel Levine. Uh, Dr. Levine is the uh, Commonwealth Secretary of Health, and she joins us today to give us the uh, state of the Commonwealth and what kind of uh, shape we're in. I can say at the outset here at the beginning, though, before we get into the uh, the, the weeds of this uh, of this interview, that uh, what I've read about Dr. Levine and what I've been seeing is that from the earliest days of her assumption of this office back in uh, 2014 as acting as Secretary of Health, she almost immediately prioritized the opioid epidemic as a, a major uh, initiative of, uh, of her job. And uh, then when she assumed the uh, poster was confirmed, I should say, by the, uh, by the state Senate just a year ago, as a matter of fact. So congratulations on that anniversary. Uh, it, has remained, it has remained a major, a major um, initiative and priority of her office. So uh, we welcome uh, the uh, Commonwealth Secretary of Health, Dr. Rachel Levine, to the program. Dr. Levine, thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And and I guess it was almost exactly a year ago, right, where you uh, you got the confirmation, and now it's you're officially the Secretary of Health. That's correct. So uh, actually, I was first nominated uh, in 2015, right at right at the beginning of the Wolf administration, as Physician General, mm-hmm. and then confirmed. Uh, and then uh, the previous Secretary, uh, Dr. Karen Murphy left uh, at the end of, uh, in July of 2017, and I was named acting secretary, and then confirmed um, in, the, uh, in the spring of 2018. And so now we have a second term, of course, for Governor Wolf, and I'm going uh, for confirmation again. Terrific. Um, before we, as I say, before we uh, bore down into, into the uh, particular issues of uh, opioid abuse and struggles here in the Commonwealth, can, can you give us the, the kind of thumbnail uh, sketch of your extensive professional background? Sure. Uh, so before um, assuming office in, in 2015, um, I have been involved with academic medicine for my entire career. Um, I was in New York City at Mount Sinai uh, and then at the Penn State College of Medicine and the Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Uh, and I started there in, in the early 90s and had been there for 20 years until I, I got the fateful phone call from the, from the governor to join his, his administration. Uh, my field is in uh, pediatrics, but my specific subspecialty is in adolescent and young adult medicine. And at Penn State Hershey, um, I started their adolescent medicine program and an eating disorder program for adolescents and young adults. Terrific. Let, let's uh, let's begin with your uh, you know your first days in office back in would you say 2015. T- tell us what the opioid situation was with us then, but but much different than what we're seeing today. Characterize for us what you saw when you assumed that office back in four or five years ago now. Sure. Um, So really, uh, Governor Wolf, from the very beginnings of the administration, uh, prior uh, um, um, 
made a priority the uh, the opioid crisis and the effect on the Commonwealth. And so literally the first day I was here, we had a meeting uh, at the governor's policy office uh, about opioids with uh, the secretary of the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs at that time was Gary Tennis and myself uh, and the governor's policy office and several other uh, secretaries to, to discuss the opioid crisis and to, to brainstorm about uh, how we're, we were going to respond. So it has been a priority from the beginning. And also, from the beginning, the governor has emphasized that it's an all-hands-on-deck approach, is that uh, we needed to address this uh, with the involvement of really almost every agency in the administration. You know, um, it doesn't sound like such a long time ago, four or five years, coincides with this program as well. So I can remember uh, hearing about, you know, a rise in uh, opioid abuse and uh, subsequent problems, but but it was... um, it was nothing like we're seeing now. What 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 were you looking at? What were you and the governor and everybody in in, uh, in Harrisburg looking at that so, raised, uh, the, raised yeah. the alarm so immediately? Absolutely. So uh, you know, in looking at the data from uh, from uh, the beginning of uh, of. 2012, 2013, there, there has been this absolute dramatic rise in the amount of, 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 of illness and death uh, due to opioid, uh, the disease of opioid addiction and from overdoses. And so it was very clear to Governor Wolf and, and the administration that this had to be a, to be a priority right at the beginning uh, of, of the administration. And so, again, we pulled together, um, we pulled together different agencies and, and started to look at different efforts to, to prevent um, opioid use disorder and addiction, uh, how to in, in, utilize the medication naloxone um, to rescue patients uh, from overdose and revive them, and then um, thinking of ways to expand treatment. What, was was the Narcan one of the first actions your office took? Was it was one of the first so, priorities of it? So that's exactly right. So uh, this was based upon uh, a uh, an act, Act 139, which was passed at the end of 2014. And what that did is allow um, first responders to uh, to have naloxone and to allow uh, the public access to naloxone. And that a physician could write what's called a third-party prescription, a, a prescription for uh, Narcan or, or naloxone. Um, even though the person that that's in front of them is not there, uh, that doesn't have the disease of addiction. This would be used on a third party, and so what we did is is to is to expand that. So one of the first actions I took in 2015 was to write two standing order prescriptions uh, under the uh, under the auspices of this law. The first was for all first responders to be able to have um, naloxone based upon my prescription um, as the state health official and. And the second was actually for the public, that anyone could go to any pharmacy in Pennsylvania and obtain naloxone based upon my prescription. They didn't need their personal physician's prescription. Um, And uh, so we have seen thousands and thousands of lives saved uh, with the the, uh, power of the act and these two standing orders. Um, Police have saved probably seven, 8,000 lives in the last four years um, using the standing order. Uh, EMS have, say, have saved probably about 16,000, 17,000 lives even in the last year. And so uh, this has been an absolute game changer and, and a powerful life-saving medication. It's always worth uh, reminding people, 
of, of what that effort you just described was all about. Because we still hear people say that the use of something like Narcan is an enabler, and why would you, you know? Why would we we get involved in this? You, you, explain what, what we're what's going on with with sure. an act like that. Sure. So, um, you know, people suffering from opioid use disorder and other addictions have have an illness. This is a disease. The Surgeon General has has called addiction a chronic relapsing brain disease. So it's so important to get past the stigma associated with this. This is not a moral failing. It's a medical condition. It's a brain disease. And so uh, anybody, everyone, deserves their life to be saved uh, with this type of medication, um, such as naloxone or Narcan. Um, Narcan has no particular side effects. You can't get high from it, and you can't get uh, addicted to it. All it does is save a life. It's so clear that, that someone um, uh, you know, cannot access treatment and get into recovery from their addiction if they're dead. And so naloxone gives people a chance at life and a chance at recovery, and everybody deserves that chance. Yeah, and congratulations for everybody uh, involved in that decision because you, you identified right, right away before it became catastrophically clear that people were dying, that the first thing you had to do was harm reduction and keep people alive if we expected to, uh, to, get, to get ahead of this problem. So that was then. Where are we now? Sure. So uh, where we are now is, is the governor actually over a year ago, maybe 15 months ago, uh, had a disaster declaration in regards to the opioid crisis. And so uh, we're these last 90 days, so we're now on the sixth iteration of the disaster declaration. And that has allowed um, us to pull together in what we call our opioid command center uh, at the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Association. And so we have now 17 different agencies at the table, all addressing the opioid crisis from their different perspective. And we are coordinating and collaborating completely. So, of course, this involves the Department of Health, the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs, the Department of Human Services, but other agencies at the table, the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Association, law enforcement, so the Department of Corrections, the Pennsylvania State Police, the Pennsylvania Commission for Crime and Delinquency, and then other agencies looking at their perspective, Department of Education in terms of prevention, in our schools, labor and industry in terms of workers' compensation. So again, 17 different agencies, mm-hmm. and we're all uh, working synergistically uh, to, to address the opioid crisis. Of course, we work um, also at the community and the county level. Uh, we collaborate with other states, and uh, we, we work closely with the federal government. And it's important to emphasize that, that much of the funding uh, that, that we are using to address the opioid crisis is coming uh, from the Department of Health and, uh, Health and Human Services and what's called SAMHSA um, and federal funding. In fact, Pennsylvania over the last three years have received approximately $108 million that we're using to address uh, the, the opioid crisis. And so the disaster declaration and the opioid command centers has served really as a national model of how a state can come together and collaborate uh, to address this. Um, and, uh, and we're making progress. Uh, we're, we're not done in any way. Uh, we, we're staying laser focused on this, but, but we are making progress in Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania Secretary of Health, Dr. Rachel Levine, is our guest on Recovery Radio. We have many more questions to ask her about the work that's being done in the midst of this epidemic. Stay with us on Recovery Radio. We'll be back. 
Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We are uh, speaking with Dr. Rachel Levine, who is um, the Commonwealth's Secretary of Health. I guess that makes her the highest public health official in the Commonwealth. So, you know, talk about the horse's mouth. We're getting the real skinny on what's being done as this opioid epidemic uh, continues to uh, ravage both the Commonwealth and the and the nation. Um, Dr. Levine, I'm, uh, it's just amazing to hear you talk about the uh, interdepartmental coordination that's going on, the all-hands-on-deck attitude that the current administration um, adopted the minute, the minute they, uh, they, got in, they got in power. To hear you describe what's going on fighting this, it's not unlike you view the opioid or substance abuse issue almost the way you would deal a communicable disease or an airborne disease. I mean, there are some similarities although obviously you can't catch substance abuse from somebody sneezing on you, it does have that kind of spreading characteristic, doesn't it? So uh, you are correct. And so there have been a number of different public health models uh, viewing the opioid crisis as a quote-unquote epidemic. Uh, usually we think of epidemics, again, you're thinking of infectious illnesses, but, but we are looking at the opioid crisis in that lens. Uh, in fact, we are going to be working with the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health, who have certain computer models about uh, infectious disease epidemics uh, like measles or something like that, and they're, they're going to be adapting those models to help us um, address the opioid crisis. Do you think the public is as cognizant of of the danger as you, as you know experts in the field are? And by that I mean, if there was an influenza, heaven forbid, influenza epidemic raging, people would justifiably scared that their family or they could get this. We still have this attitude about substance abuse or opioid abuse in particular, and that it won't happen to my family. Do we need to let the public you know, know they're at greater risk? Uh, absolutely. And I'll be honest with you, I think that we are making progress in, in that regard. So in the beginning of the, of the first term of the Wolf administration in, in 2015, I think that there was a lot of complacency that it wouldn't happen here. But we have seen the opioid crisis throughout Pennsylvania and throughout much of the nation. So this is an urban issue, um, such as in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, but this is also a suburban issue and absolutely a rural issue. And I think that, that uh, the public it has realized that. And so we have traveled the, the state, um, the secretaries and other officials in the administration, as well as the governor, uh, talking about the opioid crisis. And I, I think we see more and more people realize that it, it touches almost everyone uh, in Pennsylvania and throughout much of the nation. You know, with regard to this notion of... Um you know, the, the epidemic model and how at risk people can be from something like this. With regard to a substance like Narcan, should everybody has a little home, you know, first aid kit with some, some Band-Aids and some gauze and, and whatever antiseptic, should everybody, everyone in their home have Narcan? So that has been discussed. In fact, the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Jerome Adams, has called for everyone to have naloxone. He has said that everyone is a potential 
first responder. Uh, naloxone nasal spray is very easy to use. Uh, there's training available um, online, and uh, everyone should consider having it. I carry it in my purse, and um, if 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 I come upon you know would come upon someone uh, suffering from the disease of addiction who might have overdosed, um, I can revive them. I can save their life. And so um, yes, and, and that is why actually uh, in December. We had what we called Naloxone Day, where, uh, the, where the administration distributed over 6,100 kits free uh, to the public at our state's health centers, and then also collaborating with the public health departments in, um, in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Erie uh, to, to distribute Naloxone to the public completely free. Uh, we, we had the occasion a while back, and I'm sure you're familiar with the story of librarians in the Kensington section of Philadelphia, seeing so much uh, overdosing uh, on the steps of the library, in the park adjacent to it, and even in the stacks, that they um, pressed very hard to get uh, Narcan available to them and get trained to use it. This interview took place several months ago, and there was a sense among them that it took an inordinate amount of time to get that okayed. Has that changed? Yes, it has. So um, in the uh, 2017-18 budget, there was $5 million that the governor obtained from the legislature to purchase naloxone uh, for us to distribute to, quote-unquote, first responders. Now, we tend to think of first responders as being EMS um, providers as well as, as well as police and fire departments, but actually each county uh, can determine who should receive uh, the naloxone as first responders, and many counties included librarians and, 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 uh, and other individuals as first responders. And uh, the governor has asked for another $1.5 million in this year's budget to continue that program. That also is the funding by which we had the Naloxone Day, and we plan to repeat Naloxone Day early this summer. Terrific. Uh, just one more question about that before we have to take our second break. What is... Um what, what's, what sort of reaction are you getting from law enforcement about this? I mean, first responders, uh, you know, they're in the business of keeping people from, you know, from dying when they arrive at a scene. Police, this is new for them. How, what's their reaction to this effort? So the reaction in 2015 was cautious, but I have to say that um, that over the last number of years and with a lot of work um, by many administration officials, and including the Pennsylvania State Police, uh, we have been working to to get past that that potential stigma. And again, uh, police, um, uh, which includes Pennsylvania State Police and particularly municipal police, have saved probably 8,000 lives in the last four years with with this program. So um, if there are any, um, you know, pockets of concern about that we, we work with, we work with municipal police departments, and we have really gotten the word out that naloxone is, is absolutely necessary to save someone's life. We do realize that it's not sufficient. We have to then get people into treatment. And so other programs have, have emphasized what we call as a warm handoff or a facilitated referral for treatment. In fact, as we speak, there are warm handoff summits throughout Pennsylvania, uh, as we did a year ago, to be able to expand that program where people who are revived with naloxone are brought to the emergency department and then are, are brought into life-saving substance use disorder treatment. Pennsylvania Secretary of Health, our guest on Recovery Radio, we have more with Dr. Rachel Levine. Straight ahead, don't go away. 
Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano with you. We're here talking about the disease of addiction. That's our mandate. Uh, and to let you know that millions of people, this is the kind of uh, secret that nobody talks enough about, millions and millions of people manage to get uh, sober one way or another. The program is sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health. We give you their phone number every week and tell you the same thing. And this is the truth that comes from the top. We hope you never have to use it. But questions arise that people don't know the answers to. It can be a very harrowing situation. I give you the phone number. Someone at Retreat can help you get the information you need. So write the number down. And again, as I said, I hope you never have to use it. But in a crunch, it can be very, very helpful. 855-859-8808. That's how you reach them. 855-859-8808. Retreat Behavioral Health. Secretary Pennsylvania's uh, Secretary of Health is our guest, Dr. Rachel Levine. Um, Dr. Levine, Let's talk about the uh, wh- where we are today. There are a couple of areas I know you are particularly interested in discussing the uh, the expansion of treatment, which is which is critical. It's one thing to save people's lives when they're overdosing, and then what happens? Um, I like I have a couple of questions though about about you know the effects that, that we're seeing now. Do you, do you have any? Um, I'm sure you do. Do you have uh, figures on things like uh, well, what's life expectancy? How how has that been affected as a result of opioid abuse? So, so you're correct. So throughout the United States, actually, for, for two years in a row, uh, the life expectancy in the United States has actually declined. And that uh, was extremely uh, surprising information. You know, for the last uh, number of decades, the life expectancy in the United States has been increasing. And that is a, a direct result of, of the opioid crisis, um, which has taken hold in Pennsylvania as well as in the nation. Can I interrupt you for one, one second? As a, as a uh, medical professional, how shocking is that for the wealthiest nation on earth to see as a result of a specific event, apparently, the life expectancy overall affected by this? How shocking is that? So it, it- it, it, it is shocking, and it highlights the uh, the significance of the opioid crisis, uh, for which uh, Pennsylvania is now you know dedicated to addressing, um, as is the federal government. And we have had uh, I mentioned robust funding uh, from the federal government to the states to address this crisis. And I'm a positive and optimistic person, uh, and I think that we're going to be successful. I think we are being successful. I think that we will continue to be successful, uh, but we have to say we have to stay um, laser focused on addressing this crisis and you can uh, rest assured that the Wolf administration will do that. I wonder if you agree with me when I say one of the most positive changes of, of attitude and behavior as a result of this horrible uh, situation is that we I think we have firmly now moved out of the this is a this is a law and order issue to this is a medical issue. Do you agree we're there finally? Yes, I think that uh, uh, local government as well as state governments and the federal government recognize this for the public health crisis that it is, um, and it, it has a law enforcement aspect to it, but we're never going to arrest our way out of the opioid crisis. And so that is why uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, including its agencies, uh, the, the Center for Disease Control and SAMHSA, the Substance Use Mental Health Service Association, um, are all um, you know, uh, focused on working with states uh, to address this uh, with significant funding. And so I think that the people do realize that. Now, there is a law enforcement aspect to it, mm-hmm. and that's why at our command center uh, we have public health and safety 
actually working hand-in-hand with law enforcement. Well, with uh, just one other issue, one other question regarding that. What's going on in the Commonwealth's uh, prisons? Are, are, they, are they part of this effort as well? They are. So the Department of Corrections um, is very involved with, uh, with the command center. Um, and I think people realize that, that we don't want to use our prisons as, as, as recovery centers, right, and, and, and as rehab centers. And so uh, really uh, law enforcement is, has changed their focus. They certainly need to deal with interdiction and, and stop the flow of, of these dangerous drugs. Um, and they want to arrest, um, you know, dealers. Uh, but we want to treat patients suffering from the disease of addiction um, as patients and as people who need treatment and not, and, and not as criminals. For patients currently in, in state corrections, uh, there are significant treatment programs uh, that, that are developed as well as, as, um, as, as programs to make sure that people get treatment um, as they're being released from prison. Uh, you mentioned uh, at the beginning that your specialty was pediatrics and adolescents. Um, talk a little bit about the, the, the effect that the opioid crisis has had on um, on ba- uh, newborn babies? Sure. So uh, one of the, the, the significant issues that, um, that, that we're studying now and, and, and working to cope with are, are babies who have what is called neonatal abstinence syndrome. And so these are babies who, who's, uh, whose mothers were suffering from the disease of addiction uh, to opioids during pregnancy um, and are born not addicted, addicted is a, but dependent, um, physiologically dependent upon opioids and, and need specialized treatment. Um, so we are, are, are tracking uh, those, those babies very carefully in terms of our surveillance efforts to, to understand um, how many babies there are and where they are in, in the Commonwealth. We're working on uh, with, with um, healthcare facilities in terms of treatment protocols, both for mothers suffering from the disease of opioid addiction as well as for the babies. And then, we're, you know, from a human services point of view, in terms of developing plans of safe care uh, for those babies. And so, um, you know, we have significant efforts on that in that realm as well. Uh, let me uh, uh, let, let me ask you about um, care treatment, the expansion of it. Where, where are we in the Commonwealth sure. with getting treatment? Because it's we still have uh, pathetically low figures on the number of people who have the problem, but and and don't get treatment. So I think that that's true. We are making progress in terms of of, of expanding treatment. And uh, with the leadership of, of Secretary Jennifer Smith, who's the Secretary of the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs, um, you know, she, uh, she regulates uh, the, the uh, treatment centers uh, and the rehabilitation centers, the rehab centers in, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, we're, of course, in favor of all forms of treatment, and, and we want to expand access to, uh, to um, abstinence-based treatment, but we also want to expand and access to various uh, medication-assisted uh, treatment as well. Uh, it's important to emphasize that for medication-assisted treatment, uh, the medicine assists the treatment, so there's no magic medicine, uh, but, but MAT with uh, counseling and case management can be very effective as well. So um, the, the governor has established uh, 45 centers of excellence uh, for patients primarily with Medicaid. We have another program called PACMAT, P-A-C-M-A-T, which is Pennsylvania Coordinated Medication-Assisted Treatment, and then we have excellent um, rehabilitation centers as well. So we need to expand treatment for, for patients suffering from opioid use disorder throughout the Commonwealth. Well, with, so uh, with regard to expanding uh, treatment and getting more people the help they need, um, 
I guess I know the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway. What's the biggest roadblock? What's hindering people from, is it just money? They, they can't afford this? Well, um, so, you know, one of the most important things that the governor did at the beginning of the administration is to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And so there are um, over 700,000 people in Pennsylvania that have quality health insurance under Medicaid expansion. And that includes over 120,000 people who are accessing quality substance use disorder treatment because of Medicaid expansion. So it highlights the importance of the Affordable Care Act, which, uh, as you know, is at some risk currently. Um, So Uh, We have expanded treatment, we've expanded insurance, and there has been significant amount of money um, through uh, Secretary Smith and DDAP that have gone to what are called the SCAs, the single county authorities, the drug and alcohol authorities in each county, which will subsidize treatment for patients who are uninsured. And so I think that we are uh, working to, uh, to identify people who suffer from the disease of addiction, work past the stigma associated with that, make sure their lives are saved with the medication naloxone, and then make sure treatment is available um, where and when they need it. How much larger would the problem be in, in the Commonwealth had, had you guys not expanded Medicare, Medicaid? Well, again, 120,000 people have access to substance use disorder treatment because of Medicaid expansion. So it, it is an integral part of being able to, to uh, offer uh, access to treatment for, for people in Pennsylvania. So the problem would be much, much bigger. Uh, before I forget, there's been some un- uh, just awful news about the s- fraud, and there always is, and, and some uh, criminality with regard to uh, sober living facilities. Explain for me, are are these sober living facilities regulated by the Commonwealth? And if not, shouldn't Uh, they be? So... Yeah, so they, they are now. Um, uh, so there was legislation last year uh, signed by the governor in, in terms of, of uh, regulating um, recovery homes uh, uh, that, that you might be speaking of. Now, that would be through the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs and Secretary Jennifer Smith. I know that they are working very hard to, to write regulations to implement that legislation. We're, we're uh, speaking with the Commonwealth Secretary of Health, Dr. Rachel Levine. Um, she's she's painted a uh, you know kind of hopeful uh, not kind of a totally hopeful picture of what's happening uh, on the state level and, and you've mentioned more than once that as far as you're concerned I think the the federal government is is on board or how would you characterize the, the the partnership between the states at least Pennsylvania and and the federal government with regard to fighting this. So uh, in regards to, to fighting the opioid crisis, um, uh, we have a very good partnership with the Department of Health and Human Services um, and, it, and its agencies. And, and that's not just our state, but other states as well. And that's, you know, both from a, a, a regulatory point of view and a, and a funding point of view. Um, uh, we do have significant concerns uh, even this week about uh, the the, the continuation of the Affordable Care Act, uh, which has allowed the Medicaid expansion, which has expanded treatment. So there are other disagreements with the federal government, but in terms of the opioid crisis, um, we have been partners. Dr. Rachel Levine is our guest. We have uh, another uh, final segment uh, with her as Secretary of Health. Stay with us. This is Recovery Radio. Hi, we're back and uh, delighted to have had this time with Dr. Rachel Levine, who is the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania Secretary of Health to talk to us about the efforts going on statewide 
with regard to the opioid um, epidemic and substance abuse. And uh, by the way, I know that there is a mental health component to your efforts as well. The, the two problems very often go hand in hand, correct? They do. So other mental health issues uh, are commonly uh, present when we see uh, the disease of addiction, and that can include illnesses such as, as depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and, and other illnesses as well. So we spent, uh, you know, several uh, minutes here on the program talking about, you know, what, what's been going on, what's been done. In your view, what needs, what remains to be done? Well, I, I think that we need to continue our efforts. Um, so we are making progress. Uh, we have decreased the prescription rate of, uh, of opioids, um, which is one of the, the, the factors leading to this crisis, um, over 20% uh, in two years. And we have more prevention efforts to do, both with the medical community as well as in schools and our communities. Uh, we need to continue our life-saving efforts with the medication naloxone uh, to save people's lives. Then I mentioned the warm handoff process to get people into treatment and then to continue to expand, uh, continue to expand treatment. So uh, we're not letting up a bit, and we have to be persistent um, and, and focused uh, in our efforts, and we're going to do that. Uh, we are making progress. Uh, in 2018, we only have preliminary data in terms of opioid deaths, but certainly in the Commonwealth, they have plateaued and in, and in many areas have decreased. But still, far too many people are, are dying of, of, of overdoses due to opioids, and so we need to, uh, to continue our, our strong, coordinated efforts to battle this crisis. I know you mentioned that you don't have any obviously uh, final or definitive uh, statistics to demonstrate the direction this thing is heading. Is there, and you say you're making progress, is there a danger though in, in announcing too prematurely that there's light at the end of the tunnel with regard to this epidemic? Well, uh, I think that it is important to temper our uh, our, our enthusiasm, um, and uh, we're not saying that we're done in any way. I think that it is it's critical, however, it's critical uh, to 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 offer hope, uh, to offer hope to to people suffering from the disease of opioid addiction and opioid use disorder, to offer hope to their families who suffer right with them, to our communities that are suffering, and, and to our commonwealth. So, um, you know, again, I'm a positive and optimistic person. And and and, I, and we're going to be successful, but there's no quick fix, and we're in it for the long haul. Yeah, uh, you know what? I, this just occurred to me. I'll throw it out there. Uh, what can, what uh, can you tell uh, legitimate chronic pain sufferers uh, about their well being in, in the middle of this? Because they're very worried about being cut off from these drugs. Yes. So I understand. So so the term that I use for our prevention efforts with the medical community is opioid stewardship in that we have to learn to prescribe opioids very carefully and judiciously, but we don't want people to suffer. So it, it is a balance. So we have, um, again, this is administration-wide, worked on uh, education efforts for medical students, continuing education for current providers. We have written um, 12 prescribing guidelines, which have all been affirmed by the, by the uh, specialty boards. Uh, about opioids and including acute and chronic pain with alternatives to opioids for patients with chronic pain. Um, uh, and uh, we also have a very robust prescription drug monitoring program. 
a, a new program that, that is going to be operating is a patient advocacy program where patients who feel that they're not getting adequate care will be able to call, uh, to call a number and we will help them get the care that, the care that they need. So you're correct. There are patients with acute pain from, from an acute injury or accident or an operation that need opioids so they don't suffer. There are patients with chronic pain, chronic cancer pain, end-of-life pain, sickle cell pain, etc., that, um, that need opioids. So opioids are essential medicines in our medical practice, but we need to balance this uh, with this opioid stewardship effort. And, and finally, um, boy, what an opportunity for me to ask this question to the, uh, the Commonwealth's top uh, public health official. For a hundred years, and that's not an exaggeration, uh, marijuana was thought to cause everything from homicidal, psychotic episodes uh, to promiscuity. It, it was just an evil that caused a, a multitude of uh, devastating effects. And today... We we have it not only legal as a as a medicine in many states, including the Commonwealth, and we're being told it's a cure for everything. Some people even suggest it can be used to fight the opioid epi- epidemic. Where are we? And you're you're a professional in this field. Where are we with sure. regard to use of marijuana as a medicine? Sure. So yes, as the Secretary of Health, I am the regulator of the medical marijuana program. And I think that Pennsylvania has one of the best medical marijuana programs in the country, and there are, I believe, 33 states that have medical marijuana programs at, at this time. Um, so we have an excellent program that includes um, uh, grower processors and dispensaries, which are closely regulated by the department. We have laboratories that test the quality and safety and, and potency of the products. Uh, we have dispensaries that look like, uh, that, that look like pharmacies, and they're clearly not uh, what used to be called head shops, uh, and it's uh, for it's uh, to be recommended by physicians. Um, uh, there are, we have over a thousand physicians that are certified um, uh, practitioners in the program that have taken continuing medical education training uh, in medical marijuana. And then it's for specific conditions. We have 21 specific serious medical conditions for which medical marijuana can be recommended. So I think that we have threaded the needle um, in, in terms of creating a, a safe. Um, quality and um, and program uh, to provide medicine uh, for patients for patients who need it. Um, the most common uh, diagnosis for which patients receive medical marijuana is chronic pain, and I think it, it provides one more tool in the toolbox uh, for, uh, for for those and other patients. I want to emphasize: medical marijuana is not a cure. Uh, medical marijuana is a medicine that can help with many different symptoms. So other conditions include cancer, for instance, you know, nausea with chemotherapy, etc. cetera. Uh, it includes uh, children with intractable epilepsy and seizures, uh, chronic pain patients, as I mentioned, um, palliative care, end-of-life care, et cetera. Dr. Levy, thanks so much for your time. We, we appreciate it, and, uh, and continue the fight. We're all in this together. We, we absolutely are, and uh, under the governor's leadership, uh, in our persistent efforts, our continuous efforts, we will be successful. Dr. Rachel Levine, uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania Secretary of Health, thanks again. Bye-bye. Everybody, Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care, everybody, and uh, keep looking for Recovery Radio. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.